You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Doug Cunnington, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. I never had really meant to be an entrepreneur. A doctor. That is what I wanted to spend my time doing. But it became increasingly clear that unless I wanted to be completely taken advantage of, I needed to understand the business of medicine. So I left a hospital-owned practice and joined another physician in our own business. Since I was joining a pre-existing entity, most of the groundwork and norms were already in place. It was plug and play. I didn't need to organize or create anything. Which lasted for about five years until I realized that our burgeoning business, while successful, was not exactly what I wanted. So, on the cusp of 40, I finally decided to go off on my own and build my own business. And I was lost. I remember compiling a spreadsheet of over 100 items of to-dos before I even opened my doors. There were a lot of highs and lows in those first few years. But I survived. Even thrived. I had never meant to be in business for myself, yet here I was, an accidental entrepreneur. Hey, everybody. I'm going to do something today that I rarely do. I'm going to ask you a favor. For the next two months, I am doing a survey on Earn and Invest. This will help me figure out how to best serve you, my audience, as well as let's tell the truth, there are going to be some advertisements on the show. So I'd like to make sure those advertisements at least fit you and who you are in order to do that, we need to know more about you. If you go to earnandinvest.com slash survey, again, that's earnandinvest.com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y. It'll only take a few minutes. Tell us about yourself, and then we can make Earn and Invest a better podcast and have it fit your needs better. On top of that, Airwave Media is going to enter you to win a $500 Amazon gift card if you go ahead and tell us about yourselves. Go to earnandinvest.com slash survey. Again, this will be for the next few months, and I would totally appreciate it if you would check it out. Doug Cunnington is a busy guy. He is the creator of Niche Site Project, a blog about internet marketing and productivity. He has his own YouTube channel where he discusses affiliate marketing, SEO, and AI. And finally, he's the creator of two podcasts, Doug.show and Mile High Fi. Doug Cunnington, welcome to Earn and Invest. 
Let's go back to the way beginning. What was your dream job growing up? Wow, I haven't thought about that in a very long time. I think once I was aware that I I was going to have to get a job and I realized I couldn't be Superman or an astronaut or something like that, I thought I would just be an engineer, maybe a mechanical engineer or something like that, which you know, now that I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't sound like a very good dream job. So yeah, when I was a a little kid, I think I I wanted to do some sort of flying in the air, like Superman or some kind of superhero, I guess. It's interesting. You said, I realized I couldn't be Superman or an astronaut. Superman, obviously, unless you had some superpowers we didn't know about, wasn't probably a possibility, but an astronaut was still in the realm of possible. Why did you discount it so quickly? I... I'm a very average sort of performer in most areas. And I think I realized it was a pretty competitive field and I didn't have the energy to to put in all the the work and you know probably couldn't you know test high enough to get there. You know, I, I find that interesting because we're gonna be talking about entrepreneurship in a little bit. And like being an astronaut, you know, being an entrepreneur takes an extra bit of work. It's not just going and getting hired by someone, but you've got to kind of run the business yourself as well as provide whatever skill or product that you give people. Did you ever consider being an entrepreneur or like being an astronaut? Was that just something that that you said, well, too much work. It's not not in my skill set. I I thought about it a couple of times and looking back, we can always connect the dots a little bit better. But I remember even when I was under 10 that I would maybe try to you know buy six packs or cases of uh, Coke and then throw them in a cooler and sell them at an air show. Like I actually did that when I was a young kid. I got some help from my parents, of course, but I was doing a couple things like that. And then when I got a little bit older, when I actually wanted to spend some money, I think I was 12 and I wanted to get a CD player. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, great, like maybe we can get a CD player, but how are you going to get CDs? why don't you put together a plan on how you're going to do that? So I said I was going to cut grass, mapped out a plan. And like the next morning, I started walking around with a lawnmower, like knocking on doors at houses that had tall grass. So, you know, looking back, I had some tendencies. However, fast forward a few years. So I actually cut grass from when I was 12 to about 18 or so when I went to college. There was a entrepreneur who I was cutting his grass for a few years. He sold a business and he actually pulled me aside and said, hey, you're doing a really good job. You have a great reputation. You're probably making good money. Why don't you like make this grow? And I thought, ah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I have it in me. So at that point, I had discounted myself from actually being an entrepreneur. And I look back, that was actually like a decision point where I thought, I don't think I could do it. I just need to go, you know, get my engineering degree and keep moving forward. And then, you know, again, years later, I figured out, oh, that could have been a spot where I hired some people. He actually expressed interest in mentoring me some, but I was like, ah, I'm just a math science dude. So it's clear at some point you said, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to play it safe. Where did the self-doubt come from? I mean, can you locate where that kind of this is too hard or this is not me feeling came from? Because I feel like a lot of people have that when they're going into entrepreneurship. 
so I was good academically, but one area that I wasn't great is uh, sports. Like many nerds, I wasn't a great athlete, but I really liked to play basketball. And I tried out in eighth grade and maybe ninth grade. And I remember I was sitting with my buddy in keyboarding class back in the day where we learned how to type. And we were, we were thinking, hey, what are we going to try out this year? And I basically talked him out of trying out because, because I was like, ah, we didn't make it the last two years. Best case scenario, we'll make the team. We won't end up playing at all. So why don't we just do something else instead? Have some fun. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the root was, but I think I was aware of like my own physical limitations, mental limitations, maybe even again, now I'm thinking back, like maybe how much I actually want to work versus what I see other people doing. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to spend that much time on these activities because I don't care enough. So I'm not sure that, of course, that is a deep question, Jordan. I'm not sure that I'll be thinking about that for days. It's interesting, right? Because at some level, and I hear you because I was exactly like this. I did the same thing. It's like, oh, it's too hard to do that. And then I went to college to become a doctor. You went to college to become an engineer, something that's obviously difficult, right? Now, looking back, you could say, boy, some of those engineering classes were a heck of a lot harder probably than what I needed to learn to run my own business. So tell me about your career. So you went to college and you're like, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to work for someone else. I went to Georgia Tech and went for a computer engineering. So that ended up being a, a good fit. I was pretty good at math. So there were tons, tons of adva- advanced math classes that I did really well at. And yeah, I just thought, okay, I'm going to go the normal safe route as you described before. You know, engineering is good. I was in a pretty good engineering school. And I was just going to get whatever job. But actually, as I was going through college, I realized that I didn't love the corporate world so much, but I wasn't sure what to do. I had you know, all these sunk costs and I, I am very good at completing things. So once I get started and I want to commit, I will stick with it until I'm done. So I thought I'll get the degree and then maybe we'll figure it out later. But I, out of school, didn't get any offer. So I, you know, did the rounds and interviewed, but like my GPA wasn't quite high enough and I wasn't quite as charming as I am now. So I wasn't (laughs) nailing those interviews. Luckily, I had uh, good friends that were able to, you know, refer me. So I got referred to a consulting company called Accenture, which is a you know, a great company to work at. And thank goodness I had friends that could get me in the door because they wouldn't talk to me otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for a couple of years and and met, you know, cool people, very smart people, again, sort of confirming that I didn't have the drive to compete with these super smart people from better schools. And they were, they just had like a little more drive than me. And after probably a couple months or not too long, I figured out that this maybe wasn't a great fit, but luckily there were new projects coming every few months. So at least there was variety and maybe I would find a spot that would work for me. And really I was on the, you know, climbing the corporate ladder path and didn't really know what to do. I was like, am I going to be working this job for 
40 more years. Like I can't imagine it, but there's people that are grinding it out and everyone's telling me in performance reviews, like, you know, do a little bit more of this, like work a little bit harder, work on more projects. And I was really kind of struggling. So I would have periods where I would do a good job and then want to get off of a project so that I could like chill out, not work so many hours. I say I'm pretty lazy, but I just, you know, after, you know, 12 or 14 hours working and then you're on the road and flying in and out, it's a fairly stressful uh, environment that it didn't suit me very well. Yeah. You, you kind of say lazy and you say you couldn't go out and get a job, but my wife actually works for Accenture and has worked for Accenture, formerly Anderson Consulting for more than 20 years. So it's a pretty aggressive environment. It's an aggressive corporate environment. You can't really be a slouch and work there, or at least not for long. So you're in this corporate career that was moving you places. You were probably making good money. You were probably moving up. Tell me about discovering side hustles. Like, How did that come into play? Like many people, I found the Smart Passive Income podcast. And for me, it was in 2013. And I didn't have a strong interest in entrepreneurship. I wasn't looking for side hustles or even side income. I was a big podcast listener and I just got burned out on the shows that I was listening to. So I was just browsing around. I found Pat Flynn and honestly thought the whole thing sounded really scammy. And I I didn't know people were making good money working online and that it was, you know, fairly straightforward. There was very little barrier to give it a shot. But at that point, I think I was confident enough to give things a try. So after I listened to, I think quite literally all of Pat's episodes that were published at that point, I mean, I I just was obsessed. And of course, you develop great trust listening to someone on a podcast and there were so many different guests and you know you feel like you're just hanging out with Pat so i started a website and it was horrible right i didn't know what i was doing so i made so i made every mistake that you could even the most simple things i would goof up which is you know quite common when you just don't know but luckily I didn't mind and I knew that I was learning along the way. So even if I wasted a little bit of money and time, it was a lesson that I could move forward and hopefully not make that mistake again. So it was kind of random. And I, I remember you know telling my wife about it and she had the same skeptical ideas that I did when I first heard about it. But you know, luckily over the course of a couple of months, I started to get gain some traction. So yeah, smart passive income, Pat Flynn. I'm wondering, looking back at your history, like I, I see like these two pivotal moments, right? One is when this entrepreneur says, look, you can make a business of this. And you say, no, nah, that's not for me. And your second look at entrepreneurship is through this idea of passive income and side hustles. You know, you could say, okay, you were older, you were more mature, you knew more, maybe now you had a job and that allowed you some leeway. But I'm also wondering if approaching it as passive income or side hustles didn't feel as scary as, quote unquote, starting your own business or being an entrepreneur. A hundred percent. Yeah. I had you know, a good job. At some point, I, I moved to another company and I had a lot of autonomy at that point. So this was, like I said, 2013, but I had already been working remotely partially for a few years now. 
you know, a decade later, so common for people to work remotely. But back then it was kind of unusual and you had to get special approval from bosses. Now it's almost commonplace to not have an office. So I had a little money that I could play around with. And at that point, I knew that I didn't really like my job and I could go through the motions of the performance reviews and do what I needed to do to stay out of trouble. I was kind of a theme. I was a middle performer at best. (laughs) I knew what to do. And, you know, funny thing around, around the same time, some of my most productive years, uh, 2013 to 2015 or so. So I was working on side hustle stuff, but I also finally figured out how to get promoted, which we don't have to go deep into this rabbit hole, but I have a pretty strong distaste for like the corporate world at this point. But to get promoted, you have to market yourself really well. It's not about merit or performing really well. It's about getting your managers to speak up for you and your manager's managers to speak up for you to get you promoted. So once I figured that out, that it's all politics, then I could just, you know, hit those beats. And I did great after that. So to your point, yeah, once I had the job, knew I didn't like it as much. I felt like there was very low pressure stakes to put a little more time in. Really the most expensive thing that I invested was my time. And I was, I mean, I was really burning the candle at both ends, you know, working 10 to 12 hours in my day job. And I was waking up at maybe like 4 a.m. to work on the side hustle stuff, get those best hours as fresh brain cells working on things for me. And then I could do my day job work and then maybe come back in the evening and work more. I was working on the weekends too. So I I mean, I really put in a lot of effort once I got a little traction. What was driving you? Was it this idea of chucking your job or was it just the innate interest in what you were doing? Or was it the ability to create without some stupid politics getting in the way? Like, why were you passionate enough to get up at four in the morning and do this? Part of it was the autonomy. So that that is great. Like you don't have to go through a few layers of approval to do a very simple thing that you want to test out. You could just think of it and do it. And it's still one of the things that I love about the work that I'm doing right now. The other part was just innate obsession with what I was working on, which was pretty cool because through my corporate career, I really didn't care about the projects that I was working on, you know, building software for, you know, the iPhone. It's really, it was not exciting. It wasn't changing the world. It wasn't really impacting anyone. So to have the deep interest where you know, the kind of stuff I was working on are like niche sites. So these are like affiliate marketing type websites. So for people that don't know, it's like a review website. So maybe I'm going to get a new camera soon and I may type in best DSLR camera for YouTubers. And then you may land on a site that has uh, some reviews and gives you some tips on what camera to choose. So those are the kind of sites that I would create. The really cool part is I was just interested in doing the research to write the content. And there was enough technical aspect of creating a website and running like WordPress and setting up the hosting that scratched my itch for the technical aspect. And the writing was more creative. I was, I didn't 
grow up writing very much. I, again, took a lot of math classes. So I had kind of an aversion to writing, but this gave me an outlet and no one was out there judging me and giving me grades and telling me that I wasn't doing a good job. I could just publish again, super low barrier to entry. And I was obsessed. So that's why I would get up early, stay up late, work weekends. And it was awesome. Was it about making money or was it about the game? Was it about winning? It was a little bit of both. Once I started to earn a little bit of money, then I think I realized this is real. Let's let's do some more. I probably got lucky early on, but at some point within the first six months, I was earning pretty close to like my day job income from like one of these websites. And that really not only got my attention, but then my wife realized, hey, this is kind of real. Now, there's a roller coaster ride along the way. There's a lot of fits and starts and false starts. But once I got a taste that I actually could earn real money, then I knew many of the stories that I heard of people earning, you know, three, four times what they could have at their day job. I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. I actually have a similar background as that person or ev- even more. So I did realize at that point, like I had a good degree. I worked at competitive places. Maybe I wasn't the best there, but like I was, I was a pretty accomplished person for, I guess, for where I was at. So what was the final impetus to go full-time, to be out of corporate forever or out of the job, at least you were in forever, and to say, okay, this is how I'm going to actually make a living? So luckily, I got laid off because... Luckily. <laughs> luckily. I love <laughs> that. Luckily, I got laid off. Go ahead. And the thing is, I know... I mean, I was... Seriously, that was a very lucky thing because there's a chance if I if I didn't get laid off, I would still be doing the same job because it was it was not bad enough where I had to quit, but it wasn't good enough where I thought I really like doing this job. At the point where I found Smart Passive Income, I started listening to other podcasts, Tim Ferriss, Tropical MBA, a couple others in the entrepreneurship space. And I started thinking more like an entrepreneur and I started testing things. And I started doing things without approval. So I mentioned earlier, a couple layers of approval before you can do anything. I stopped asking because I kept saying no. So I had enough autonomy with my team of like, you know, I think it was like six to 15 people, depending on what was going on. I just started testing things and then I would share the results later. So managers don't like that. So quick tip for people that have a corporate job, they they still want you to get approval. So I was a bit of a rogue employee occasionally. The other thing that happened was my wife and I also realized that we were both working remotely and we could do some slow travel. So we tested that out for maybe a year or two. And then we sold our condo back in Atlanta and headed out west. And we were going to go on a three-month slow travel road trip. We stayed in Montana for a little while, thought we were going to migrate down where I live now to the Boulder County area, Longmont, Colorado. And we actually loved Bozeman, Montana so much that we just stayed there. So we moved there and I didn't tell my company that we were traveling at all. And we were in Bozeman I called up my boss. And I said, hey, we moved and I would love to work this out. But if it's not going to work out, 
that's okay. Just let me know what you want to do. So they said it was going to be okay, but actually was on the front end of layoffs. So while I was a, a good manager and had my team running really well, I was uh, a bit rogue at times. And then I just moved. So I gave them a pretty good reason to tell me to you know take a hike. But getting laid off made that so much easier because I wasn't earning quite enough money to replace the income at that point. And then the other thing is my wife is extremely risk averse. And you know, she, even now that I've been doing this for eight years, she's still actually not confident that I could run my business well, which is kind of funny to say out loud. I mean, we've hit, we hit five, things are fine, pressure's off, but she's still like, I can't believe that you're working for yourself and that you've been doing it for a while, which is kind of, kind of funny. So like many people, the layoff was a, a blessing, which is crazy to say out loud. It's a weird sentence. Can you believe you're working for yourself? You said your wife is kind of looks at it and pinches herself, right? And says, I can't believe this is working out. Do you share that? Or does this just feel like what you were meant to do? It feels pretty good. Yeah, it feels pretty good now. And it makes sense to me now that I've like connected the dots in reverse. I see I have a pretty interesting skill set. I didn't have a background in the kind of work that I do now, which is mostly, you know, content creator, I have podcast and YouTube, and I, I write a decent amount too. And I, I wasn't really doing any of that sort of thing. So it does make sense when I look and I see the skills that I've developed over time, the amount of time that I put into it. And, you know, like my YouTube channel, I have some early, I haven't deleted any videos. So I have some of the early videos and you could see like many creators on YouTube. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess early on. I didn't know what I was doing. I look scared of the camera. And now I do, you know, live streams each week, can easily publish videos and it's, it's not a big deal. So I, I could believe it just because I know I put in the time and work. We are talking to Doug Cunnington. He left corporate America and eventually his nine to five to become a solopreneur and pursue his side hustles and passive income. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Doug Cunnington, who is an incredibly busy guy. He is the creator of Niche Site Project, a blog about internet marketing and productivity, his own YouTube channel where he discusses affiliate marketing, SEO, and AI. And finally, he's the creator of two podcasts, Doug.show and Mile High Fi. So, Doug, we've been talking about in the first part of the show a lot of the mindset, but I want to get a little more granular here. Tell me about your revenue streams. Like, how do you make money today? So I have a, a few areas and I've I've layered this on over the years, but currently I earn money from online courses and affiliate marketing. I have Sold a couple websites, although I'm not currently, you know, trying to build and sell websites, but I've sold a couple for the low six-figure range. And I have ads on my podcast and YouTube channel, not the Mile High Five show, but the affiliate marketing show called Duck Show. And just to give a little scope, I mean, I I was doing fine. I think I had an average salary for someone in project management at a consulting company. It was like the low six figures. Again, I've emphasized that I'm, I wasn't like a top performer, but I was doing okay. And we were living comfortably. And the, the cool part is I started to get a little deeper into side hustles and just people working online, digital marketing and such. And this the stats that I was hearing, the amount of money that people just like me were earning, it didn't sound right. It sounded like way too much. I couldn't understand how people were making, you know, two hundred to five hundred thousand dollars per year working a job that was fairly straightforward, that one that they created themselves, and they had no employees. But 
where I sit now, it makes total sense. And I have a couple assistants to help me out, but I don't have any like full-time employees. And I have a, I try to not work too much. So you, you mentioned I'm a busy guy. I'm actually not that busy. <laughs> it's through deliberate, you know, cultivation of making sure I'm not working too much, but I'm probably working like 15 to 20 hours per week. So one other, I, I sent you some notes, Jordan. I usually don't share this specifics, but I looked back in preparation for this and I, I don't even look back for, for fun, but I have earned about 650K from online courses since 2015, about 400K from affiliate marketing and 200K from ads in my podcast and YouTube. And when I looked at that, I thought, wow, that sounds like way, way too much money. But it, it's amazing. Like when you cut out the fat of like a, a corporate structure and you're just providing value to your direct audience or customers or clients or whatever, there's high margins. And I am floored and surprised to see like what I've been able to do really from a zero, starting at zero, there, there was no skill set in this area. I didn't know anything about creating courses or video or marketing and sales. So I, I think anyone can do it if they put in the time and layer on the skills. I, I want to emphasize this point. Um, and I want people to be clear on this. Like you didn't do this in the stuff in your job, right? And you didn't go to school for any of this. So this was either self-taught or through courses that you did online. Did you have to spend a lot of money? I mean, like, did you end up spending thousands and thousands of dollars to learn these things? A lot of it was free education online. So, you know, other folks like me, where we just tell our stories and, and share a lot for free. A lot of people do that. At some point when I was earning money, I purchased, you know, several thousand dollars of courses. So I actually bought a course on courses, which was really helpful to structure it properly. It sounds very, you know, recursive and it is a little bit, but it is you know, critical to understand how to do that so that you have an effective course that you actually can sell. And I took a, a few other courses on copywriting and maybe sales related type things from Ramit Sethi, I will teach you to be rich, like wonderful suite of products. And I paid a lot for, you know, those courses. These were all say three to $5,000 courses generally. And I made the money back almost immediately, like high value, like anything, the more work you put in and the more you do the exercises and just follow the directions it it really does work. And I know it sounds like a huge amount of money, but at that point I was confident that those types of courses would really be able to move the needle and I would get value from them almost immediately. So basically, right, the return on investment, you're talking about thousands of dollars, but ultimately you're talking about making 1 million plus over the last 10 years that you had a pretty high return of investment on paying for those courses. So let's break this down a little bit based on how you make money. Describe to us the online courses. Why did you get into it? What's kind of the magic around it? I know part of the magic is once you make the course, you can sell it over and over again. You don't have to really do a lot more work on making the course once it's done. But tell us why you got into that. When I first got started via Pat Flynn and some of his peers, I saw that they, they were teaching and I thought, 
I want to follow in their footsteps. I'm not sure why I was driven towards that, but I thought they started a blog, they're doing YouTube. That seems pretty cool to me. They seem happy. The other part is, you know, part of the business. And when I got started, it was, you know, creating these affiliate niche websites. And there's some volatility associated with that. So you typically get traffic from Google. And then for my specific case, I was often earning from Amazon. Google and Amazon are not good business partners. They, they typically don't care about the little person. So there was a huge piece that I couldn't control from the supply side and the demand side. So at the very beginning, I thought I also want to have digital products that I could sell where I own everything. I have an email list. And even if I have an issue with Google or Amazon or some other affiliate partner, I have an asset that I own 100% that is something that I can control. So at the very beginning in 2013, I was interested in actually sold an ebook, which were popular in those days, sold an ebook from the very beginning. So it was important to, to me to have sort of diversification. So one piece is, you know, the online course, once you create it, you are able to sell it again and again. And the other is just having the control over the product and having very high margins. Once you figure out how to, you know, create or rather attract an audience, you could figure out what they want, what problem you can help them solve. And because I was, you know, sharing my story along the way, again, following in the footsteps of the people I learned from where they shared their story, I learned. So I was just trying to figure out if I can do the same thing. And once you figure out how to create one course, you can do others, which, you know, at some point I realized, okay, I don't want to create too many courses here. There's some overhead associated with it. But once you figure out the perfect match for your audience and the product fit, it it works wonderfully. So that's creating courses. We also talked a little bit about affiliates. Affiliates basically is you have a website, you get a lot of traffic on that website, you have links for them to buy products. If the product is bought, the people who own those products or the platform that those products are bought from pays you a certain percentage. Sounds a lot like an SEO game, right? We're really talking about a search engine optimization. Yes, primarily. And, you know, another skill set I didn't even mention, but SEO is a huge industry. Like once people have a website or they have a business that they realize they can get some web traffic, SEO is what they end up looking for. So I've developed, you know, a lot of skills in the SEO area, which I've talked at some conferences oriented towards that as well. And what it's morphed into as well is, YouTube and podcasting too. So anywhere there's an audience, you can do affiliate marketing. And once you you know run your business for a little while, you realize it's really great to have diversity in your traffic sources and your revenue sources. So as time has gone on, I've realized, okay, if we can spread this out a little bit, spread the risk, we'll be in, in better shape. So that's what I've done. And I haven't been focusing as much on SEO as I have on, say, YouTube, for example, just because there's a little bit different reach. It's a little less competitive just because video is a little bit more challenging 
than writing and, and maybe the video world isn't as mature and YouTube isn't as mature as blogging and writing is. I want to talk about YouTube in a moment, but just one more moment on SEO. It seems to me like there are two types of people in the world. There are people like me who just SEO seems like a complete foreign language and it never seems to work out. And then it seems like there's this protected group of people who just get it. So the question is, can anyone figure out SEO? Like how hard is it to get a lot of traffic to a website? Anyone can do it. It It's all dependent, I think, on the resources that a person is willing to to put into it. It's gotten a little more competitive since I started a decade ago. But when I started, some people said that I was saturated, it's too competitive. And, you know, any given year, someone says that it's, it's too crowded. But you really can. There's a couple key things. And I, I typically go after in a target low competition areas. So that's the, you know, one key thing. If you're going after some keywords, which are a keyword phrase is just what you type into Google to search for something. So like I said earlier, you know, best camera for YouTube. So if you were to go after best camera for YouTube, it's probably a little bit competitive because it's it's not very specific. But if you were to type in or target and write an article on best camera for beginning YouTubers focusing on astrophotography, right? It's super specific. You could probably rank for that pretty easily, especially if you know what you're talking about. Hopefully you know what you're talking about, (laughs) but there's not that many people searching for it. So you can really answer the question for that searcher and be very specific about what camera to get, what features they should look for, why those features are important, and then recommend a couple cameras. So the competition level is very important and you can, you know, work your way up to highly competitive search terms, but when you're starting out, it's much easier to go after something very specific. All right, let's transition to YouTube and podcasts. So you can sell through affiliates through either of those things, right? But the other way is actually have paid advertising, right? So if you have an audience, that audience can be monetized by having companies pay you. And the pay usually has to do with how many listeners or viewers you get. You said you've been transitioning a little bit on that side, whether it be affiliates or in this case, paid advertising. How difficult is that? Because I I mean, I have a podcast. I like getting paid for what I do, but it's not always the easiest thing. Again, a lot of it seems to be the same idea as SEO, except now you're talking about either podcast or YouTube traffic as opposed to blog traffic. I think this is another case of me getting pretty lucky. So my audience is fairly modest on both the podcast and and YouTube, which are, are kind of one in the same, but... I ended up earning way more than I expected. And in, in the beginning, podcast and YouTube were the top end of the funnel. So the sales funnel for my courses, I would you know create free content. People would learn, hopefully trust me, develop some you know personal likability as well. And they would sign up for my email list where then I could sell them my course. Well, after doing my podcast for about a year, I started to get approached by companies in the space. And these are typically like content agencies or SEO agencies that want to get in front of my audience. So I I wasn't getting paid on a 
CPM basis or basically the, the number of downloads, I just was really aggressive with negotiations. And the thing is, I, I didn't need the ad revenue. So I was earning good money selling my courses. So I didn't care. And the other thing about me is I'm not a great, even though I've done well with affiliate marketing, for my affiliate marketing, my Doug Show podcast and YouTube channel, I'm very honest. So if I don't like a product, I'll I'll tell people. And it's really hard. I'm in essentially the make money online space, which gets a little sleazy. So I try to I try to be very honest and transparent. And if a product isn't great, then I'll be very hard on it and I'll I'll tell people about it. So in on one aspect, I'm not a very good affiliate because I tell the truth. But then for the audience, it develops a huge amount of trust. So basically, I had a lot of trust with my audience because I would say something is terrible if it really was. And they weren't getting that from other influencers or other creators. They were just, they were being told they had to get this product because it was so good. And they, you know, they didn't know what to believe. So anyway, I came in very aggressive with the negotiations because I didn't need the money. If they said no, I didn't care. So it didn't work out a couple of times, but then at some point, some companies were very happy to pay a lot of money. So there have been, I guess for a few years, I've been making roughly eight to 10K per month from revenue from the podcast and YouTube, and I'm not getting that many downloads. So say a thousand downloads per episode or so, you know, it goes up and down and all that stuff. So, and you know, ad revenue on podcasts, right, Jordan? So this is oh, like yeah, that's wildly very, that's out of, outsized. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I, I mean, a lot of people did write back and say, you're out of your mind. Like we're not interested, but the thing is like, it's a audience that spends a lot of money. So when there is a conversion, it typically is a, you know, a lot of money and it will stick around for a while. So I just, I think, again, I, I got a little bit lucky because it's the right audience and I developed, you know, the right kind of trust with my listeners overall. So let's round out the conversation here. What's the secret sauce, right? So you're doing lots of different things. You're doing things that you didn't train for, at least originally. How do other people jump in the way you did? What can you tell them now that you've gone through the process? One big thing to remember is if you're looking at what I'm doing now and you try to replicate it, it will be extremely difficult and it won't it won't make any sense. I started in the very beginning with just one affiliate site and I tried to tried to learn a little bit. And then I layered on another blog and then I, I layered on these skills over time. And I currently have two podcasts and two YouTube channels, but I started with just one YouTube channel and then layered on a podcast and you get better at these different skills over time. So it doesn't take as much of a mental load. Maybe your processes get better. Maybe you could bring on an assistant that can offload some of the things that you don't have to do. Just layering on skills is the way to approach it. And I like to have flexibility and options. So when I would start something, I I would realize, okay, how can I 
arrange the foundation and plan this so that I could expand if I want to. You don't have to. But if I want to expand, I can grow from this foundation that I'm laying. The other piece, like we mentioned before, I took some courses and I got some coaching that was you know, fairly expensive. I didn't ever go into debt. I, it was always a reinvestment of money that I was earning. And I would be really careful before I bought the course to make sure it was a good fit. I would ask questions. I would do all the work. So when I did pay a lot for a course, I would go to, you know, all the office hours or coaching. I would ask a ton of questions. I would do all the exercises, even if I thought that I knew what I was doing already, I would just go through everything. So quick summary, you know, start, start small, like layer on the complexity You can make it as complex as you want later, but keep it simple, layer it on. And finally, whatever whatever you're going to work on, it's probably going to be a little harder than you think, and it's going to take longer. And everyone thinks they're a little bit better than they are maybe, or maybe that's just me, but I think, oh, I had this technical background. I should be able to figure out this stuff a little bit faster. That's not true. I I didn't do it any faster. I was probably a little bit slower than some other people. So maybe budget two to three X time. Like it's going to take you more than what you think. It always takes longer. So as I shared in the introduction to this show, in a lot of ways, I was an accidental entrepreneur. I mean, I could have started my own practice right out of the gate, out of residency. I didn't. And part of the reason why is I tried to work in many different practices and when with many different people, and I could never get to the job that I truly wanted. So eventually I had to create it. I think we share the story. And I go back to your childhood story of being on the crux of a business right before college, having this entrepreneur come to you and say, hey, I can help you. Let's do this. I guess what I'm trying to get at is what could that guy have told you back then that would have brought you to entrepreneurship sooner? And is there anything? Is it just you had to evolve or was there something that could have changed things? I think if he would, and I don't, I don't blame it on him at all. I, I was like, ah, whatever. I'm not super interested in growing a landscaping business, but I think if he would have pulled me aside like one or two more times and maybe showed me some numbers or told me a little bit more about the possibilities of what you can do as an entrepreneur, I think maybe that would have changed my mind. The other part is I probably like a 17 or 18 year old, you probably you think you know it all. <laughs> Looking back, you know, even just a few years ago, I realized I didn't know anything back then. And I'm sure in like two or three years, Jordan, I'm going to look back and think, wow, you didn't know anything in 2023 either. So I realized <laughs> it's a trend and we, we learn over time. But I probably thought that like going to engineering school was going to be, you know, a really, really great thing to do that would be really fulfilling. But I didn't have, I mean, I wasn't talking to engineers who were on the job for like a decade. So I wasn't doing sort of that investigating, the kind of things that we might do now where we ask people who are successful, in air quotes, successful at the thing that I'm trying to do and they're 10 years ahead of me to figure out like, do I want to be there in 10 years? 
So as I started doing that thought exercise, you know, as I was older, it makes a lot of sense. So going back to your question, maybe just getting a little more exposure and seeing maybe some other businesses and other business owners. And I'm sure like many of us, he was perhaps in like a mastermind or some sort of group where they would sit around and drink coffee on a, you know, Tuesday morning and talk about their businesses and see if they could help each other out with problems they're trying to solve. Like that makes total sense. And then I would have had a lot more exposure of the possibilities, but I mean, hard to say. And I, you know, like you mentioned, I needed to go through and make my own, my own mistakes and see that the jobs that looked like they were great, maybe weren't as good. Gosh, I, I remember when I was interning in college, there was the manager of our group and he, he was about 30. He had a BMW. And I was like, man, if I could be a manager by the time I'm 30, that would just be fantastic. That That is success right there. Of course, looking back now, I'm like, well, that, that is a dumb goal. <laughs> like that, he didn't even look that happy. But for some reason, you know, he was the boss. He had a team working for him. And you, you think that's where I want to be. But it wasn't. Doug, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I really take two major lessons from this conversation. One is that for those who have an entrepreneurial mindset, that's great. And often they will take that path immediately. But just because you don't have that mindset doesn't mean that you might not one day be a fantastic entrepreneur. It just means that you might have to start slowly and with low stakes. And that's a completely reasonable way also to get there. Just because it doesn't come natural to you doesn't mean that you can't do it. The other thing I kind of learned from this talk is if you want the job or the thing in the world that appeals to you, sometimes you can't be an employee. Sometimes you have to create it. And whether you want to or not, whether you have the mindset entrepreneur or not, to see the thing you want in the world, sometimes you have no choice but to create it. And it may take you places you didn't think you would go. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode, Doug, by asking you what is up next in your life. And if people want to learn more about you specifically or ask questions, what's the best way for them to do that? So let's start first with what is coming up next in your life. We, my wife and I, and our dog, Georgie, we're going to do some slow travel this year. So we've gone um, a few years without the slow travel aspect and, you know, vacations are great. And, you know, you spend a week or two somewhere, but you're always a little bit rushed. And I feel like maybe the dopamine hits over the course of a week, it makes the last day not nearly as exciting as the first day. But with the slow travel, you can live like a local a little bit more. So we're going to be doing a little bit of that this year, heading back up to Montana to visit some, visiting some family back in Georgia, and probably another little trip here or there. So pretty excited about that. And, you know, work-wise, I, I do a show with Carl Jensen. We, we have the show Mile High Fi. So we are looking forward to getting, uh, you know, more guests and more interviews. And we both live here in Longmont. And there's some cool people that, that drift through town as the Mr. Money Mustache HQ is just down the street. So, you know, Jordan, when you pass through town, we've collaborated a little bit. So we're looking forward to hanging out with cool people that are just passing through Longmont over the summer. So, and then if, if people want to learn more, so if you're interested in 
my side hustle and affiliate marketing side of the business. There is the Doug Show. And I, I would recommend it, you know, if you're if you're interested in YouTube, I have a YouTube channel. It's it's under Doug Cunnington and, and you could find me there. There's random videos on, you know, marketing. There's some vlogs thrown in there. I'm not too precious about the content, so I don't get burned out. I just publish whatever I feel interested in. And on the other side, you know, Mile High Fi, great interviews there. Jordan, you, you've been on. We have some great guests, JL Collins, Paula Pant. I can't remember all of them, but yeah, we have some great interviews out there. If people want to check that, I would love it. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. Doug Cunnington, thank you for chatting today. Thanks so much. It's been a blast. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Yo, everybody, before we get to the after show, I have a few announcements. First and foremost, Julie, if you're listening, I hope you're enjoying your walk. I'm sure everyone wonders what I'm talking about. Well, Julie is one of the people that I met at the Economy Conference. I've now seen her two years in a row there, and this is really a great way for us, meaning me and you, all of the people listening right now, to interact in person. I love going to conferences. It's one of the ways in which I get to hear what people who listen to the show think. Yes, people write me all the time. They email me, but nothing is like person-to-person interaction. I think my next event is going to be the Camp Fi Midwest. That is in Minnesota, and it's usually right around Labor Day weekend. That's campfi.org. Go ahead, check out campfi.org. If you want to hang out with me specifically, Camp Fi Midwest in September. I'd love to see you all there. That's number one. Number two, as you probably heard at the beginning of the show, we are doing surveys on Earn and Invest. This is the best way for me to figure out how to serve you, the audience, not only in what shows we have, what kind of guests we have, but also what kind of ads are part of this podcast. Only if we know who you are and what you're about can we then tailor those ads to you to make them worthwhile so you don't just have to listen through them. So go ahead, go to earnandinvest.com slash survey, earnandinvest.com slash survey. It'll take you about five minutes and you, by filling out the survey, are put into a raffle to win a 500 gift certificate from Airwave Media. I think that's for Amazon. So check it out, earnandinvest.com slash survey. Last but not least, if you like the show, but you like more of a visual to go along with the audio, there is an Earn and Invest YouTube channel and I post Every show, unedited, you get to see the live, raw video as well as hear the audio. That is at earnandinvest.com slash YouTube, earnandinvest.com slash YouTube. I've got about 800 subscribers. I'd really love to get up to 1,000. So if you're checking it out, go and subscribe. Even if you don't listen, I'd love to make it to 1,000 subscribers. And like I said, it gives you a chance to see the video as well as the audio of each recording Some of the video gets cut out. I should say some of the audio gets cut out, but since the videos are unedited, you'll get to see just about everything. That's all I have for everybody today. So I hope you enjoy the after show and talk to you again soon. Awesome. I think leave things running just for a few minutes to catch kind of our after show chatter. 
Um, that was really cool. I think your story is, yeah, it's it's the unintentional entrepreneur, the accidental entrepreneur, and I think more of us need to hear about that, right? And not in the sense that it's hurried or rushed or painful or God, you should be doing this. Why aren't you? But more like if there's shit out there in the world that interests you, just kind of go after it. And and the stakes don't have to be high and you can continue your job. But if you get that thing that makes you want to wake up at 4 a.m. to like mess around with it, then you're onto something. And hey, you might make some money too. (laughs) And, you know, the other part that I, I didn't realize it at the time, but as you're in the same job for a little while, you're maybe not learning new things. So I was learning all these new skills in different areas and challenging myself. And as we've, as I've gotten more into financial independence and like I see people, you know, retiring, I'm like, I, I've created a job where I don't need to retire. I'm working on cool things and I am filling that that need to like learn more to keep challenging my mind. And I I think people maybe they don't even think about that, but I'm like learning all this new stuff that I had no idea existed. Yeah. What I like about it is it's really expansive. It's the only word that I can really think of that makes sense is you get to a point in life where it's like you drop a little bit of your ego and you just start expanding and it means learning and it means growing and it means throwing yourself into things you're uncomfortable with because you don't care anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, and that expansiveness, you know, it really kills this idea of traditional retirement because I think when people start expanding, it's not that you want to work less. You just want to work on stuff that's just more appealing and you want to do it in your own time course. And if you want to sleep in in the morning, you want to not think about it. Like you want control and like you said, autonomy. Um, but it, it's a much more natural way that that we should look at kind of quote unquote career because I think even career is a bad word, right? It's just kind of working on the stuff that you find interesting um, and having the space to make enough money to survive while you're doing that with it being very unstressed. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. And I think, you know, for me, the autonomy is maybe the number one thing. I, I mean, if I want to st- stop working on something that I don't find enjoyable. I can just quit. I don't have to check with anyone. I could just stop doing it. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I, I wanted to ask you, Jordan, <laughs> do you do much uh, stuff on YouTube or have you, do you have any interest in the video world? So I have, so now I post like un, pretty much unedited videos of my conversations up there, but I've been loath to dive kind of deep. Um, yeah. Just because it at the moment it hasn't been as appealing. Um, But I love talk. I love having deep conversations and I I don't mind at all being in front of a camera. Cool. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you do so much speaking like you wouldn't I wouldn't imagine that you're uh, nervous out there. But yeah, I mean, I I just I don't I guess I, I like the camera gear. Is one thing. So I kind of have the technicality of it too for you. Yeah. Cool. Um, and I, I I mean, I watch a lot of YouTube, but yeah, I just kind of decided I was going to put more time into it a few years ago and it's ended up paying off. I mean, it's tough, but it, like we're saying, it's a cool, challenging thing to, to get into, but you have tons of stuff you're working on. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to encourage you to do it. I'm always looking as you are, I'm sure for ways to learn and grow. Um, most of my energy at the moment has been spent with the podcast as well as writing because I'm I'm 
con- contemplating working on my next book. And so that's kind of what's really kind of kept me busy lately. Um, but I don't know. There's I'm always looking for ways to expand the conversation. And uh, I like the more mediums. It, so yes, getting into more mediums is painful, but it also does expand it to a different audience or a slightly different audience. And there's some appeal to that too. And I, I just keep talking to you all day long. When um, when you write, when you are going to sit down to write that you know, first draft or whatever, what's your normal practice that you do? So I don't like, I like to write early in the morning if possible. Right. So I love to write when there's no one around and it's quiet just because the lack of interruptions. Um, and it just depends. Like I have different things. Like some days I'll turn on a little bit of classical music and come down here to my podcasting area. Cause it's in the basement. It's my own desk and everything. Some days I'll go sit by the fire. We have a living room with a, with a, you know, a gas fire. And I turn that on, especially if it's cold and I just kind of will write. Um, nice. Sometimes I'll work on it while my wife's watching TV and we're sitting in front of the TV. So I don't know if I have a singular practice. I have multiple different practices maybe that fit my different moods at the time and and the seriousness of the writing, right? So when I'm really in the weeds, sitting at this desk or even in front of the fire is important. Whereas when I'm doing some of the flourishes and final touches while I'm watching TV, doing that kind of thing is fine. Gotcha. And then do you have like a, a word count target or is it a set amount of time and you do what you... So for general, like to write a full length manuscript, really the goal is around 60,000 words. Um, So I work by chapter, right? So I'm thinking, depending on how many chapters I want in the book, like the book I'm looking at writing now will be 13 to 15 chapters, right? So I can at least keep in my head, okay, you know, you should generally be thinking about this many words, but of course, some are going to be shorter and some are going to be longer. Um, Okay. But I try not to... I try to tell the story the way it's meant to be told and hopefully the words eventually fit in correctly. And then I'll stop grilling you in a second. When do you know the, the stories and anecdotes that will go in there already? Like, do you have a notebook where you have all these like things that you're going to put together or are you writing it like sort of from an outline and you're building it out from there? So what happened is so so for this this next book I'm thinking about writing, I did a book proposal, right? So book proposal is like a 50, 60 page document that you start with an intro where you're writing something to publisher saying, This is why I'm writing this book. This is what's kind of important about it. You have to go through comparable books. So you have three or four books that are comparable. You have to go through market, like what market, who who will this speak to? Um And then you give them some sample chapters. And in this case, in most of them, you also give them an outline. So for this book that I'm working on, I got really granular with the outline. So the outline itself is about 10 pages. It talks specifically about, so each chapter's in there. I've actually put pretty well thought out text and content in for each. So for each, each bullet point, each chapter has a good two or three paragraphs, maybe a full page worth of here's where I'm going with this. Here's some of the data I'm going to pull up. And in fact, I've gone as granular as here's what boxed content I think I'm going to want in each in each chapter. So that's been really, really helpful because assuming fingers crossed that I get someone who wants this book proposal and buys it, then when I go to pull out, write the book. So I've written an intro and a few chapters, but when I go to really pull it together, I have a nice outline to really kind of dig into. And I actually have a lot of the wording in the outline already too. So it's just kind of expanding and building on that. Um, So I wasn't as granular with my first book, Taking Stock, but that one went through a series of rewrites. So what it ended up being evolved over time as I wrote and rewrote, et cetera. 
Gotcha. That's awesome. I think the second book will be a lot easier than the first because I kind of now know what to do. It's just like anything, right? Just like the first time you did affiliates or the first time you did a course, like it's never, usually it isn't your best. I mean, maybe best content wise, but it's never like the easiest because you've got to learn everything for the first time. And so it gets easier, like your second and third and fourth course. I'm sure you're like, oh yeah, okay. I put this here and this is how this goes. And this is the hook I need here. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's exactly like that. And I think, you know, the first time around, I thought everything was like, so, so very important. And then I realized like, there's a lot of, at least with the courses, like you could go back and do updates. You, you, and like, you iterate. It's okay. And yeah, you iterate, iterate, right? The the problem is, and people don't realize this, you have to do a crap job first before <laughs> you can do a good job. And so you like, you just get the crap job out there. Hopefully it doesn't cost you too much or doesn't hurt you too much with the, with the crowd. And then you build on it and you fix it and you take some input and you learn how other people do it. And you're like, oh, the problem even from the beginning, right, is a lot of times you don't even know what to copy yet because you don't know what's important. You've got to like do it badly and then be like, okay, this part didn't work. And then it's like, oh, so-and-so does this really well. I could do it like he does it or she does it. And then you're like, okay, I can iterate that way. I can bring in some good principles from other people. But you've got to kind of screw it up first. Yeah, that that is the name of the game. It's just filled with mistakes and the mistakes don't go away. It's just now I make like bigger mistakes, but I know that it's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're quicker. The iteration process gets faster, right? You recognize what doesn't work faster and it's not about ego anymore. It's like, oh, well, that part doesn't work. Let's just get rid of that, put something else in. Yeah, yeah for sure. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.